All right, so this is where we start kind of bringing it home um, this week and then the week after Thanksgiving. And as I've, as I've thought about this, I've really wrestled with, okay, how do you wrap up this series? How do you bring it to closure? How do you uh, kind of take it to a place where it's more applicable to us? It's, there's been application, I hope, all along the way. But, you know, we've talked about a lot of different guys, and um, we've never met them other than through history. Um, these guys look nothing like us, right? Um, in the sense that, you know, their beards are a little bit different. This looks more like a Life Stage 2 group, um, like a, like a, or a group of millennial, millennial pastors. Um, but here's the deal. As I've looked at these guys and studied their lives, it just makes me want to say, why are they so special? You know, Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Bucer, Melanchthon, all these guys, um, Wycliffe, Huss, why are they so special? Now, here's what I know about both studying the Bible, which is an historical document, and studying the Reformation is we take these men whether it's these guys or we take David and Joseph and Abraham and we deify them. We, we put them on a pedestal and we say, well, they were just special. Noah was just special. And we lose sight of the fact that they're just men. And that's what I want to kind of talk about this morning is why are these guys still revered in the sense of the Reformation? Now, in a lot of churches, they weren't. You know, it's amazing how many churches didn't talk about the Reformation this year, even though it was the 500th anniversary. Um, but in those churches that did, like our church, we looked at five different, uh, five different ones of these characters, and we talked about their character. We talked about what they accomplished. In no way are we trying to deify these men. They all had flaws. They all had warts. They couldn't get along. They fought. They divided. But... What makes them so special? I think they're ordinary. Even though they accomplished extraordinary things, I think at the end of the day, they're ordinary men. They had vices. They had issues. They had problems. Luther had an uh, anger problem. Uh, he, at, later on in his life, had some things that he said against Jews that to this day are used against him. He was not a perfect man. None of them were. They were egotistical. They had pride. They had struggles in their lives, but they're ordinary. They weren't born into wealth. Very few of these men, and I went back and looked at their lives, and none of them were really born into wealth. They weren't born into prominence. They weren't born into power. They came from, for the most part, good homes. Some of them maybe a little more strict than others. They were all Christian in the sense that they were born into Christian homes. They were baptized into the Catholic faith. And all of them shared this deep love for the Word of God. That's kind of the common theme in all of their lives. They loved the Scriptures. Now, keep in mind, at that point of time, the Scriptures were not easily accessible. You didn't even necessarily have a copy of the Scriptures in your home. We were talking just earlier this morning about how the Bible is, is still the best-selling book by far, but I would love to see stats that show how many Bibles have been sold and then how many of those sold were read. Big difference. It's a best-selling book, but in their age, you didn't have access to it. But they did have a deep love for the Word of God. 
they weren't born reformers. What does that mean? Well, they didn't come into the world like Christ to do a particular job. They, they didn't have an assignment from birth that they were going to be reformers. Now, did God in his sovereign will know that he was going to use these men? I think so. But they didn't know until later in life. Luther was well into his years before he realized that I need to speak up. I need to do something. And that's true of all of these guys. Here's what I've realized going back and looking at their lives. And, and this is going to be kind of a, a twist in what we've talked about over the last 10 weeks. They were immersed in a culture, right? It was a Catholic culture because Catholicism was the main faith. It was really the only faith until the reformers came around. That's the culture they lived in. And that culture, what was unique about the culture is, unlike our culture, we have a secular culture and we have a Christian culture or a spiritual culture. We try not to blend those two, separation of church and state. And in their age, it was just the opposite. They were attached at the hip. It was the Holy Roman Empire. The emperor was appointed by the Pope, and the church and the state were linked. They were one. And so that is the culture. And so when we think church, we tend to think we separate it and say, okay, here's the church, here's its issues, here's its problem, here's its job, here's the state, here's what it's supposed to do. We should influence the state, but they're, they're really a different entity and a different thing. And so we say, well, we live in a secular culture, and we tend to think over here, well, that's the secular culture is this thing called government, economy, entertainment, and then there's the church. What we got to keep in mind is that during the Reformation, they were linked. They were one. They were the same. And, and so I went back, and I just started thinking about what was their culture like? And here's a list that I came up with. It's certainly not complete, but it's depressing. Um, Decadence, immorality, idolatry, hedonism, false piety, racial inequality, political instability, Islamic encroachment, intellectualism, and the worship of man. Sound familiar? <laughs> this was a period of time, and this was so fascinating, is the church was in control. The church ran the government, so to speak. And look at what they had. They had the same issues we have today. They had decadence and immorality. They had priests who had mistresses. They had uh, popes who were immoral. They had all kinds of issues. They had emperors that were immoral. And it, it didn't matter that the church and the state were linked. They still had problems. The culture is the culture. And guess what? We're part of the culture. And, and that's what we have to think about, guys, is that we may say, well, we have separation of church and state. Well, as long as we keep the church healthy, that's all that matters. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. We just got to keep doing our thing. What do we do? What, what's, what's the point? Why am I even bringing this up? It goes back to these men. What did they do in the midst of the culture in which they lived? So here's the Holy Roman Empire of that day. Here's what they had to stand up against, and you got to keep this in mind. Popes. The Pope was the most powerful man in the world at that time, even more powerful than the emperor, because the emperor could kill you. The Pope could keep you out of heaven. 
He had more power over the lives of Catholics than the emperor himself, and the emperors feared that power. That's why when you saw anything happen between church and state, the, the, the emperor could say, well, I'm going to take over. I have more power than the pope. I'm in charge. And the pope would say, that's great, but you're excommunicated. You can't take the sacraments. I'm going to keep you out of heaven. As a matter of fact, your entire empire is excommunicated. That's a lot of power. And so what'd the emperor do? Okay, never mind. You're in charge. I don't want to be excommunicated. I want to be kept out of heaven. So this issue of, of power was huge. So popes, you had emperors. Luther had to appear before the emperor. They had to appear before these men and the emperors were Catholic and the emperors were part of the culture and the, what was wrong. And, and so they were pressed from the pope. They were pressed from emperors, electors. There were seven electors in Germany at this time or in the Holy Roman Empire and they were the ones who elected the emperor. And these men had power and these men had authority. If you remember back to the whole issue of adult indulgences, it's because the electors, many of them were using indulgences to put money in their own pockets. So when Luther spoke up, he was hurting them. So you had electors, you had the inquisitors. You've ever watched a Monty Python movie? You know who the inquisitors were. They're the guys who went around and they captured people and they worked for the Catholic church and they put people in jail and they tortured people and they got them to recant. And Luther and all these guys were facing the inquisitors because ultimately they were going to be charged with heresy and either burned or drowned or quartered or whatever they chose to do to them. So they were standing up against a lot. They were standing up against academics. Our children, if you have, I have one kid left in college, he's a senior, praise the Lord. Um, I'll have her done and then I'm done with college, I hope. Um, but every one of my kids who's gone to college has wrestled with secular academics. It really doesn't matter if you go to a Christian school or a secular school, it's in both places. The idea of the academic standing up and Luther and the, the reformers would have to stand up against in the intelligence or the intelligentsia of their day, the academics who were, who were standing against them. And again, even though the church was in control of all things. And then finally, skeptics, skeptics of all kind. We live in an age of skepticism. So did they. So here are the, these guys, normal men, average guys, had families. They were just trying to live their lives. They weren't all priests. They weren't all preachers. Some were, some weren't. But they had to stand up against all these things. And so it's made me step back and say, okay, what am I willing to stand up against? What, what are my foes in this day and age in the culture in which I live? Hans Hildebrand says this, and it was really kind of interesting. Uh, and I read it earlier uh, in studying for this series, and I went back to it and found it again. But he says, Protestant historians have so paid homage, seeing the Reformation as a reaction against a decadent church that had fallen into grave theological error. Stop there. What he's saying is that we as, as Protestants, when we look back at the Reformation, the way we summarize the Reformation is that the church was decadent and immoral. That was the problem. And Luther and the Reformers were in it, attempting to fix it. What many um, theologians, historians have come to the conclusion is German nationalism, social class, and the general intellectual climate were the catalysts for reform. Now, now, why is this important? 
It would be so easy for us to look back and say, well, the problem was the church was corrupt. And it was. And the reformers were trying to correct it, and they were. But there was far more going on in that culture. And what he points out is you see German nationalism. You see the reason that Luther was protected by the elector and others is because where was the Pope? Rome. What was mostly the, the, the Holy Roman Empire? Germany, at least modern Germany. And so these people living in Germany took offense for all the pressure put on them by the Pope financially and otherwise, morally, and nationalism kicked in. And they were like, you're not going to take Luther. He's one of ours. He speaks for us. So you had nationalism involved. You had uh, social class, peasants against the upper class. One of the things that happened during the Reformation was the Peasants' War, where the peasants took the writings of Luther and the other reformers and said, yeah, we're just as good as they are. We're part of the kingdom. And so they rose up because of oppression, because they were kept in poverty by their lords, and they lived under a fiefdom kind of um, mindset. And, and many hundreds of thousands of them would die in this Peasants' War. So there are a lot of factors going on, just like there are a lot of factors going on in our day and age. But at the end of the day, it's about the gospel. And this is what I, I want to keep coming back to this, that it's still about the gospel. It was then, it is now. The gospel and its influence on culture. See, what we do is we say, okay, we live in a society now where church and state are separated. They lived in a day when they were together. And in both cases, then as now, the gospel was having no influence on the culture, even though they were attached at the hip. Now we've separated them. It's even worse because now we have no influence. We separate them and we say, well, is the gospel having an influence? First of all, is it having an influence on us, the church? And if it's not having an influence on us, how in the world do we think it's ever going to have an influence on the culture? And the truth is, they're never really separated. Jesus prayed that we would be in the world, but not of the world. We're in the world. I don't know if you've noticed that. We're faced with it every day. We're surrounded by it. Are we an influence? Are we making a difference? These men made a difference. How about you? So are we reformers or conformers? And, and, and really, my goal today is not to beat you upside the head and make you feel guilty and, oh gosh, I got to go out and I got to do something reformational. That, that's not my goal. Uh, my goal is to get us to think back, okay, what drove these men to do what they did and take the risk that they took? Why did they do this? Why didn't they just go with the flow? Why did they rock the boat? Why did they risk their lives? And it, it begs the question, what if they hadn't? What if none of them had ever stood up and spoken up? Where would we be? Would we be meeting? Would the church look like it does now? If they had just chosen to say, you know what? I see what the Bible says, but if I open my mouth, I'm going to get into a lot of trouble. Over and over again, Luther had so many opportunities to say, it's safer to shut up. If I speak up, I'm going to get lit up. Literally, I'm going to get burned. So I'm just going to shut up. And he wrestled with that. Do I just shut up? 
And there were conversations he had with himself where he'd say, am I really that smart to think that I'm smarter than everybody else that's come along and I'm smarter than all the theologians and all the priests and everybody and they've read the same Bible and I think I have truth that they don't have. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not that bright. Maybe I just ought to shut up so I don't get lit up, so I don't get burned up. What if they had not been men of the word? What if Luther and these men had not gone back to the scriptures and started studying the scriptures? See, you can play all kinds of games with this, but what if they hadn't? What if they hadn't been the men that they were? And what if they had just chosen to conform? What would conformity have looked like in that day? Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep being a monk. Keep practicing the Catholic faith the way it's practiced. Turn a blind eye to what you see as abuses. Uh, don't say anything about it. It's okay. We're doing all right. I'm, my life's okay. Live out your life. Enjoy your life. That's conformity. We sometimes think conformity is becoming exactly like the world. Our greatest danger is not becoming exactly like the world, but just being a really bad imitation of the world. In other words, the church takes on more of a secular tone than it does a spiritual tone. And when the lost person looks at the church and they look at the world, they don't see that much difference other than a few moral issues. Conformity is not as black and white as we tend to make it. There's a, an old saying that says, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. Great, great phrase. Some say uh, um, Mark Twain said it. Uh, there's a lot of debate on who said it. We don't know who really said it. But here's what it, bottom line is. Keep your mouth shut. Because if you say something, you're going to get in trouble. Um, that's the world in which we live. I'm afraid to speak up. I'm afraid to say what I think the word might say. So we just stay silent. And I'm grateful that these men didn't do that. And the Proverbs has a similar statement. And we got to be real careful how we interpret this. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. And some of us would probably be better off keeping our mouths shut. Because we don't know what the scriptures say. If anybody ever comes to you for counsel and, and you really don't know what to say, don't say anything. If you can't say, well, the scriptures say, or here's, here's, what, here's a verse that I found that I think might apply to that. If you're just going to give your own personal advice, it's probably better to say, man, I don't know. It is probably proper to just shut up. But here's the deal. As these men were reading the scriptures, they were convicted by the word of God and the spirit of God, and they couldn't keep silent. They had to speak up. They had to say something. They had to speak into their culture, and the culture just happened to be secular and Christian combined. But they had to say something, not conform. And I believe that conformity is the new face of Christianity. Let's just conform. Let's just not speak up. Let's just be accommodating. Let's just be tolerant. And see, guys, the world is screaming at you and I to just tolerate everything around you. It's okay. Why is your truth better than my truth? Why is your way, Christ's way, better than our way? Why don't you just shut up? And some of us have said, okay, I will, because it's easier I'm just not going to rock the boat. Conformity 
was true then and it's true now. And it's always the danger for the body of Christ to just conform. Here's a definition of conformity. Action in accord with prevailing social standards, attitudes, practices, etc. Here's the deal. That can happen in a church. It can happen in society. And what's really sad is when the church does it in conjunction with society. When we just cave in, when we just compromise and we start going with prevailing social standards, attitudes, practices, and we stop preaching the gospel. Um, I had a chance to speak um, Sunday night to leadership in our Life Stage 2 uh, ministry, which are young people in their 20s. And that's one of the things that I was talking to them about. We were talking about how to study the scriptures, but the passage we were in in Luke was really about the reaction that Jesus Christ got everywhere he went. We read through the, or had read through the first six chapters of Luke. And what jumped out at me in studying through the first six chapters of Luke is that everything about Jesus, everywhere he went, everything he said, got a reaction. When he was born, there was a reaction both positive and negative. When he healed, there was a reaction, both positive and negative. Some people rejoiced, some people wanted him dead. He always got a reaction. He never had a non-reaction. Jesus is reactionary. He causes a reaction. Are you? Do you cause a reaction when you walk into a room, when you open your mouth, when you live out your faith, or do you conform? Are you more like the society than you are like Christ? So my challenge this morning is how do we live like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Bucer, Melanchthon, all of these guys, Wycliffe, Huss, how do we live like them? I'm not, I'm not uh, asking you to take on a death wish. You know, we're, we're not really, we don't need to fear death, at least at this point, if we speak up. We may get rejected, we may be ridiculed just like they were, but how do we live like these men? Martin Luther said this in a letter that he wrote to Frederick the Elector, who was over the area in Germany where he lived. He says, you ask me what I shall do if I am called before the emperor. I will go even if I'm too sick to stand on my feet. If Caesar calls me, God calls me. If violence is used as well as it may be, I commend my cause to God. And I love this about Luther. And I don't know how much of this is just like blowing smoke, but I do think this is what Luther truly believed. That because he was facing being called to Rome to basically be declared a heretic. He'd already been declared a heretic. And he told the elector, Frederick, who was the one protecting him, that, you know what, if I get called, I'm going. And if I have to die, I'll die. It's a different mindset, a different attitude about what he believed he found in the scriptures and what he was willing to do. He went on and said in this letter, this is no time to think of safety. I must take care that the gospel is not brought into contempt by our fear to confess and seal our teaching with our blood. Man, how radical is that? When you think about our society, this is no time to think of safety, comfort, convenience, pleasure, accommodation, I don't want to speak up. You ever been in that situation, maybe at work, where God has said in your heart to speak up and you just go, mm, that's risky. I mean, I have. You know, in the, the years that I was in advertising, most of the people I worked with are not believers and they would say things or they would talk about things and I would have this check in my spirit that say, you need to speak into that. No, 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 Lord, that's not a, this is, you don't understand. 
this is not a good time. That would not, Lord, that would not be good for my career. And I would just keep my mouth shut. Safety, acceptance, fitting in. Luther uh, said uh, later on in the letter, I ask you whether now when the blessed Savior is mocked, we should not, not fight for him. I write this candidly to you because I am afraid you hesitate between Christ and the Pope, though they are diametrically opposed. You got to keep in mind, he's writing to the elector. He's one of the seven men who elects the emperor. He's got incredible power. He could turn Luther over to the Pope and he's his protector. And he's basically saying, you know what? I think you hesitate between Christ and the Pope. You can't decide where your allegiance lies. But as far as I'm concerned, mine lies with Christ and the gospel. And I'm going to speak up. I'm going to stand up. I'm not going to let my savior be mocked. Again, guys, all I'm trying to get us to understand is that these are normal men. They're just like you and I. They, they have fears. They have families. They are concerned with life. They want to live a good life. They enjoy a good meal. They want to do all the things that we want to do, but something is driving them to do the things that they did. And I think, what's driving my life? What's my motivation? Is it the gospel or is it my own convenience Fitting in, being accepted, being loved, being liked. I don't want to rock the boat. And if these men had had that attitude, we would not be here. I really don't believe we would. And I'm not saying God's not sovereign and God couldn't have worked this out. But it's because these men listen to the voice of God that we are where we are. He writes a, another letter to Frederick. He says, if, if I were not sure that the gospel is on our side, I would have given up. All the sorrow I've had is nothing compared to this. I would gladly have paid for this with my life. What's his point? The gospel. If I didn't truly believe the gospel and it was on our side and that I'm speaking truth and I'm speaking the word of God, I would have given up a long time ago. Here's the deal. Do you really believe the gospel's the answer? See, Luther did. And for a lot of us in the room, I think we do and we don't. Well, I know it was true for me, but I just don't know if it's true for everybody. If you truly believe the gospel is the answer, why in the world would you not speak up and say, you're headed down the wrong path. You, your way is not the right way. Your form of truth is not truth. I know the truth because I've had the truth transform my life. And Luther, I think one of the reasons Luther in particular was so powerful about all this is because he had spent so many years trying to do it the wrong way. He found the right way and he couldn't keep silent because he said, what he discovered in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and the Proverbs was, it's like I walked through the doors of paradise. I found what I've been looking for all these years, and it was such a relief. Now i got to tell everybody else. i got to tell the Pope. i got to go tell the cardinals. i got to tell the bishops. But nobody would listen, so he started telling everybody else, all the peasants. I can't keep silent. He goes on and says, the devil is at work in this. As for myself, my gospel is not from men. Concessions bring only contempt. I cannot yield an inch to the devil. The devil knows I would have gone into Worms, though there were as many devils as tiles on the roof. I was going to go to Worms, and I was going to speak up regardless of what happens to me. See, he saw this as spiritual warfare. We just started a series this last Sunday on spiritual warfare. Guys, this is all about spiritual warfare. The enemy hates what you're doing. He hates that you're a believer. He hates that you're here. And here's what I know. Every Thursday morning, he attacks you. In what form? The alarm goes off. Oh. 
I really don't want to go. He does it to me. I don't want to go either. I'd rather sleep. I'd rather stay in bed. And the enemy attacks you. And he attacks you in those kinds of ways. He attacks you in other ways. The enemy hates the gospel. And he hates the church. And he hates believers. And he hates believers who believe the gospel. He doesn't hate believers who could care less about the gospel. He hates those who rely on the gospel, live for the gospel. And so Luther said, you know what? I don't care how many devils are in worms. I'm going, and I'm going to say what I need to say. Was he scared? Yes. Did he fear for his life? Yes. But he spoke up because he knew it was a spiritual battle, and the battle still goes on today. 500 years later, not a whole lot has changed. We know the gospel's under attack. People go, that doesn't make any sense. That's ridiculous. Some God took on human flesh and lived a sinless life and died on the cross and rose again and I place my faith in him and I get to spend eternity with God? Ah, garbage. Doesn't make sense. And the enemy is still trying to fight against the gospel. Even though Jesus rose and Satan knows he rose again, he knows he failed in his attempt to get rid of the Messiah, but he's still attacking. He's still fighting. And we're still stuck in the war. Right? You and I are in that war every single day of our lives. And the battle is over the gospel. So what I want to do is I want to take the rest of the time we have together and we're going to look at a passage, a little bit different than what we've done the last few weeks. And we're going to look at John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. And, and this is going to be a little weird. It's going to be a little strange. Um, but guys, hear me out as we look at this passage. This is not me. This is Christ. These are the words from the lips of Christ speaking to you and I about our situation. So look at verse 18, John chapter 15. In this passage, repeatedly he uses the word if. And what's interesting about if is when we use if, we say, well, if I win the lottery, I'll tithe. Right? That's an if-then conditional statement. If I do, I will. We all know you won't, but we say we will. Every if that he uses in this passage is not, it's not that conditional. The conditions have already been met. In other words, it's not if this happens, this, this will happen, or I will do this. It's if, and it already has happened. And that's important to understand because these things have already taken place. Here's what I mean. He says, if the world hates you, speaking to the disciples, you are a disciple. If the world hates you, and guess what? It does. See, this is before he died, before he rose again, and he's telling the disciples if the world hates you, and because of the rest of the statements he's going to say, the world already hates him, it does hate you. If the world hates you, know this, it's hated me. It hates you because it hates Jesus. Now, again, this is before he died, before he rose again, before he ascended on high. So Jesus is telling the disciples, the world hates you. Why? Because it hates me. How do we know that? Well, he had already been rejected. He had already been ridiculed. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, all the religious leaders were looking for a way to kill him. He had already been rejected. He had followers, but they were all going to leave him eventually. And the world hated him. See, what we've got to get into our head is the world hates you. The culture in which Martin Luther and all these other men lived hated them. The church hated them. The church didn't like what they had to say. The emperor didn't like what they had to say. The elector didn't like what they had to say. Nobody liked what they had to say for the most part. 
because they were speaking truth. They were speaking the gospel. Jesus goes on, if you were of the world, in other words, you lived in the world, you were part of this thing called the world, but you're not, is the inference, because what? I chose you out of the world. See, Jesus telling these guys, you're no longer part of the world because when I chose you as my disciple, I pulled you out of the world. And see, the problem is we've been pulled out of the world by Christ, salvation through Christ, and we have made, been made part of the kingdom. We, we still live like we're in the world and we want to be loved by the world. But Jesus tells his disciples, if you were of the world, but you're not, I, because I chose you. And he says, if the world would love you as its own, but it doesn't. And see, this is the thing we wrestle with. I want the world to love me. I want everybody to like me. I want all my lost friends to like me for who I am. And we want the world to just be attracted to us. And sometimes, guys, we're going to have to wake up and smell the coffee. If you preach the gospel, you will not be liked by most people. Because what's important about the gospel, what is critical to the gospel is you have to say you are a sinner and you are condemned to hell and you can't save yourself and nobody wants to hear that. What do you mean I'm a sinner? Not that bad. What do you mean I can't save myself? I can do good things. See, when Luther and these guys started preaching the true gospel as opposed to a gospel of works, they were condemning people and saying, you will never be right with God because it's impossible because you are by nature a sinner. And if we speak up, we're going to offend people. The world will love you as its own, but it doesn't because you are not of the world. See, he said, I chose you out of the world. You are no longer part of the world. And the world, you got to get it out of your heads, guys, that the world is going to somehow love you and you're going to be popular. Remember when the two disciples came to him and said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and your left? What were they looking for? Power, yes, but popularity, influence. And see, what most of us look for in life is popularity, power, influence, acceptance. But Jesus is telling the disciples, the world is going to hate you. Why? Because they hate me. It's, it's going to happen. And then he says, therefore, guess what, guys? The world hates you. It just, let's get it clear. The world hates you. Hates me, hates you. Accept it. And we have to accept that, guys. The world, the world system, that doesn't mean every person you know hates your guts. But this world system of which the enemy is in charge hates you, hates everything about you and wants nothing but your destruction because you stand against what it represents. And for Jesus, this is the bottom line. It's the bottom line for you and I. The world hates Jesus. The world hates you. Your association, your just mere association with him means you're hated. And he it, as Luther said, concessions bring only more contempt. Here's the deal. If you want to be like this world, go ahead. But people who look at you and you say, well, I'm a Christian, they will condemn you because, well, if you're a Christian, why do you act like everybody else? We're, we're our own worst enemy because we say we're believers, but we live like we're unbelievers too often. And the lost world looks at us and goes, what does your faith even mean? Because you don't look any different. Concession just brings only more contempt. 
which eventually leads you to go, well, I'm just going to jettison it all together. And you walk away from it. Compromise never makes the world love you. It won't. It may feel like it, but as soon as they get a glimpse of that you're a believer and that you have any kind of moral standard or any, any kind of belief in the truth of God's word, they will turn on you in a New York minute. That's what's going to happen. And Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand that. The world hates you. Then he says, if they persecuted me, and they did, they already had, and they were going to in a really big way just not long after that, they will also persecute you. Isn't this why most of the people left? As soon as Jesus started talking about take up your cross and follow me, they're like, yeah, this has been great, but I'm all over the miracles, the bread, the, the fishes. I'm not into this. I don't want to be persecuted. But he's telling his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's going to happen. It comes with the package. It's part of the territory. He said, if they kept my word, but they didn't. See, Jesus came preaching repentance, but very few people listened to what he had to say. Jesus came talking about himself and his kingdom and life in his kingdom, but very few people wanted to listen to it. And he said, they will keep your word. What does that tell you? If they had kept my word, they didn't. They will keep yours. They won't. The vast majority of the people we talk to aren't going to listen to what you have to say, guys. But that doesn't mean you stop saying it. Our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is to live out the gospel. And then he tells them, all of these things they will do to you. What are all these things? Persecution. Jesus would later tell the disciples, you're going to be drugged before kings, and you're going to be drugged before courts, and you're going to be turned on by your family members. You're going to be rejected and ridiculed. It's going to happen. These things will come on you. Why? On account of me. Account of my name the name of Jesus Christ. See, here's the deal. If you speak up for Jesus Christ, you will be ostracized. You be, will be ridiculed by the vast majority of people. You have to speak up. Jesus Christ's name is indelibly linked to what? The gospel. So when you speak Jesus, when you speak truth, when you say Jesus Christ and you talk about the gospel as it relates to Jesus Christ, you will be hated because of it. This culture, this world hates it. And here's the scary part. There are many within the church who hate it. Even though they go to church, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear about me being a sinner. I don't want to hear about that I have to rely on Jesus for everything, that I can't save myself. Certainly I can save myself. I can do good things. They don't want to hear the gospel. And you will be hated. You will be ostracized because they don't know him who sent me. Even within the church, most certainly within our culture, but within the church culture, there are those who really don't know Christ, and they really don't know God. They really don't understand. And Jesus had said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And we know that every time we gather on Sunday, and even in this room this morning, there are guys who have never placed their faith in Christ, and they do not know God. They're here. They're studying the Bible. They're with other men who know God and have a relationship with Christ, but they do not yet have that. And we know that's true because they don't know him. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't recognize him. And then Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, but he did, they would not have been guilty of sin. See, Jesus condemned them with his words and his very presence. And that should be true of you and I. 
well, I don't want to condemn anybody. Your very presence, the very presence of Christ in you, your knowledge of the gospel should condemn the lost around you. We are light in the darkness. What does light do? It exposes darkness. It doesn't welcome it. It doesn't put its arms around it. I'm not telling you not to love your lost friends and not to hang out with lost people. You have to hang out with lost people if you're going to live in this world, but you do not condone their behavior. You speak into it. You live your life out in front of them and you tell them there's a better way. What you're doing will never bring you satisfaction. What you're doing will never bring you hope. You're guilty of sin. And Jesus says, they are guilty. And we live in a world that is guilty of sin. And we're just afraid to speak up. Jesus says, they have no excuse. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter one and chapter two. No one was, is without excuse, guys. But we have the answer. What if these men had never spoken up? What if they had read about the gospel, justification, sanctification, Christ alone, faith alone? What if they had never taken what they had learned and shared it with anybody? We wouldn't be here. He says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, but he did, they would not be guilty of sin. See, Jesus did miracles. Jesus did all kinds of things. Jesus fed them. What, what did he do? Healings, right? He healed people. He, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. He, he loaves and, and fed thousands of people. He did all these incredible miracles to prove that he was the Messiah and people still wouldn't believe. They still wouldn't follow him. They still didn't understand, even though the works they did. And he says, as a result, they have seen and hated both me and my father. In spite of all the works that he did, they still hated him. Here's, here's what you got to get through your head and I got to get through mine. You're going to do things every day of your life that are right and they are in line with the gospel. They're in line with the kingdom and you're going to do the works of God and the spirit's going to work through you and people are going to hate you for it. That's what Jesus is telling me. That's what Jesus was telling, I think, Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and, Mar and, and Bucer and all these guys that you're going to speak up and guess what? It's not going to be easy and you're not going to get accepted and you're not going to be listened to. See, it says they hated both me and my father and it happened. They killed him. They crucified him. And he says they hated me without a cause and that's the way they're going to hate you. Again, I'm not telling you this to depress you. Jesus wasn't telling them. Earlier in chapter 15, he says, I'm telling you all this so that your joy may be full. Really, Lord? This is great. Why should we be joyful? Because we know the truth. We know the outcome. We have the hope of the world within us. We know we're saved. We've been justified. We're right with God. We're going to spend eternity with him. What do we have to lose? Speak up. Live it out. Don't be afraid. See, the bottom line is the world hates you because the world hates the gospel. What's the gospel? Man's sin. Men are sinners. Men need a savior. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to be told they're a sinner and they need a savior. And nobody wants to be told they're helpless and hopeless. That's not how, Dan, you know, Dale Carnegie told you how to win friends and influence enemies. Well, you, you know, you're helpless and hopeless. You can't save yourself. You're a loser. But yet, that's the gospel. 
It eliminates man as his own God. At the end of the day, guys, that's what this is all about. We all want to be our own God. And if you're going to speak up for the gospel, you're going to tell people your God, you, is never going to get you where you think you need to go. You're not your own God. There's another God. And so when we speak up for the gospel, the world hates us. And yet we still want to be in love with the world. So 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Listen to what the apostle John says. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Now he's writing to Christians. What do you mean I don't have the love of the Father in me? He said he'd never leave me or forsake me. Paul said nothing can separate me from the love of God. What does this mean? It means when you fall in love with the world and you want the things the world offers and you want the things it, it provides and you crave them more than you crave God, you no longer have the love of God flowing through you. You've become myopic. You're like a stagnant stream. See, I think the love of, of the father is a love that he's given you that is to flow through you to those around you. And so when you fall in love with the world, see, loving the world is a selfish thing at the end of the day. When we love the world, we want what the world will give us. I want the world's stuff. I want the world's goods. I want the joy, the satisfaction, the toys, and it's all about me. And yet, when the love of the Father is in me and flowing through me, I don't care about the world. I care about those who live in the world. He goes on and says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. We are not to love this world. We're not to love the things of this world. And yet we do. We crave them. This world is fading away along with everything that people crave, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. What does that mean? It means exactly what it meant to the reformers. I need to love what God loves. I want to do what pleases God. What pleases God? Taking the gospel that has changed my life and sharing it with somebody else. More than loving the world. I just read last night in uh, Blaise Pascal and his pen says, he, he talks about, one of the things that we struggle with as Christians is diversion. We love diversion. Anything that will divert us from our pain, our sorrow. And so we, we look for diversions in the world. Entertainment, drugs, sex, alcohol. And yet our greatest diversion is to be the gospel. It diverted us from what? Death. It diverted us from condemnation. And we should always go back to the gospel I go back to this quote from Luther. This is no time to think of safety. I must take care that the gospel is not brought into contempt by our fear to confess and seal our teaching with, the blood, with our own blood. Are you willing to stand up for the gospel in the midst of this culture? Paul told the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's the gospel. It's the truth of the gospel. Don't be conformed. Here's, here's what I believe conformity to the world is. It's the opposite of conformity to Christ, being like him. It's desiring its praise more than God's. It's making more of man than Christ. It's seeking temporal satisfaction over eternal promises and finally allowing someone else to stand for the truth. What do I mean by that? Well, Ken will do it. Ted will do it. That's what we pay the pastors to do. You preach the truth. I'm going to go live my life. No. What if Luther had taken that stance? What if Calvin had taken that stance? We each have a job to do. 
So here's your three discussion questions. They're pretty simple, but they're not easy. What does compromise to this world look like in your life? How does it show up? Why is it so dangerous to you, to your spiritual walk? Do not point to the person across from you. Okay. This is your question and answer. Why do you seem, why do we seem so easily to, to, let me start over. Why do we seem to so easily disqualify ourselves from being like Luther? Why do we think he had something we don't? He was super spiritual. That's not me. I could never have done this. God can't use me. Finally, discuss Luther's quote. This is no time to think of safety. I must take care that the gospel is not brought into contempt by our fear to confess and seal our teaching with our blood. What would that look like for you today? For me today? For us today? Father, thank you for these men. Bless the time as they talk and they discuss. Bring this home. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to understand that this world hates us, but you love us. You loved us enough to send your son to die for us. Now may we speak up and tell others what we know, just like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Bucer, Melanchthon, all of these men did to the risk of their lives because we know it's the truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.